0: And it's turned out they've they've identified seven of them, seven of these circuits that uh, will urge you to take action. One of the ones that I found uh, most interesting is-
1: Welcome to Finding Your Spark again. I am so glad to be here with you again. My guest today, Renaud Purifoy, holds a master's degree in counseling and is the author of four books, anxiety, phobias, and panic taking charge of conquering fear, overcoming anxiety from short-term fixes to long-term recovery, anger, taming the beast, and just released why you feel the way you do. Renault is in private practice for 20 years as a marriage and family therapist specializing in anxiety disorders. He retired from private practice to teach at a local college in Sacramento, California. He has since retired from teaching and spends his time writing, speaking, and playing guitar. He has a YouTube channel that features videos on a variety of practical life skills that you can be certain we will have linked on the platform you're listening to. Thank you for joining me today, Renault.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's just a pleasure to be here.
1: Yes, it is. It really is nice to get to connect in this way. Um, I am really excited about getting to sort of really explore some ideas here with you. And, uh, you know, your book, your latest book sounds fascinating. But in particular, I would love to talk a little bit about what, how we're related to our animals in the emotional capacity.
0: Well, since uh, well about 1990, uh, affective neurobiology, which is affective means uh, your emotions, and that's really been coming up. Uh, and it turns out that we have seven circuits that we share with all the other mammals or pets or cats and dogs and stuff. And maybe let me explain what they mean by affect first. And affect is something that, causes you to do something. It drives you. It causes an urge to take action. So the simple ones are just your sensory ones, heat, cold, pressure. So if I'm cold, I want to get warm. If I'm hot, I want to get cold. Then above that, they have what they call the homeostatic um, affects. That's just a big word, homeostasis. It's keeping the same state inside of you. So hunger and thirst would be the two common ones that people are familiar with. I'm hungry. I want to eat thirsty, I want to drink. So it urges you to take action. Uh, and of course, the more hungry, the more thirsty you are, the stronger that urge becomes. So emotions are kind of the next level up. And it's turned out they've, they've identified seven of them, seven of these circuits that uh, will urge you to take action. One of the ones that I found uh, most interesting is the seeking circuit. And this is something that causes you, if you see it most plainly in uh, babies uh, and little children, uh, a baby, the first thing they want to do is crawl around and touch everything, feel everything, explore their environment. That's, that's the same whether we're talking about kittens or puppies or whatever. And it's an actual circuit in the body that urges you to go out and explore your environment, which is why if you go to like a new building and you're sitting in you know an office or something, the first thing you do is you look around and you check everything out. And it's actually part of that... Uh, Primitive desire to just is—is is it safe? Are there dangers? Are there good stuff I can explore? And of course, as adults, it causes us to uh, like to explore things, get new experiences, to have hobbies and things of that nature. Uh, another one that's really fun is the play uh, circuit. All mammals like to play; they're they're infant, and that's how we learn social limits. You're—I'm I'm watching uh, three and a half-year-old right now. Uh, and when she does too much, you say, that's too much. And so she learns, you know, how to respond socially. And the same thing goes with her, again, we're talking about, you know, cats, dogs, wolves, or whatever. All of the social animals, they have this circuit that helps them learn what the limits are through play. And uh, so those two I, I found to be very interesting. And then, of course, you have uh, the lust circuit, which is gets active during adolescence. Don't need to talk a lot about that. Everybody knows that, what that was about. And it's interesting that you have two fear circuits. One is danger, but the other one uh uh Panseth labeled panic, but we know it more as separation anxiety. So children, when they're separated from their caregivers, you know, they have that panic. And uh, same thing with uh, animals that when they get separated from their parent, you know, they they go into distress, and that triggers what's called the caring circuit inside of you. And if you're ever at uh, Disneyland or, or a fair or something, and you see some little kid fall down and start crying, look around at all the other kids. They immediately start to focus on what's going on. That caring circuit kicks in. And those two circuits are part of what binds us as adults. Uh, it's the panic circuit that turns into uh, sadness when you miss things that are important to you. And of course, all these circuits get filtered up through the higher thinking processes and get... Uh, modulated or changed or uh, affected by your beliefs, your expectations, and your experiences. They can also be enhanced or they can be dampened. Uh, The sad case of uh, children that came out of Eastern Europe orphanages where they weren't really cared for, they were never touched. When they cried, people didn't respond to them. They had a bottle propped up to eat them. And so those circuits that allowed them to bond with their parents got dampened. And so they developed what they call attachment disorders. They had a hard time attaching and they could actually measure this by looking at some of the hormones like oxytocin levels and stuff, uh, between them and children who had a more normal experience. So these circuits are not uniform with everybody. Again, they get shaped by your experience. They get shaped by, uh, your beliefs about yourself, the world, and you know, the things around you. And, uh, but there's something we do share with our pets. And, and of course, the fun thing is in the last century, a lot of psychologists thought animals did not have emotions. In fact, they would even say that. They're just little condition response, you know, machines. And anybody who has a pet knows that's not true. <laughs> anybody who's been around animals for any length the time knows that, yeah, they, they have experienced the same emotions that we do. Um, we have a lot of thinking and stuff that we filter them through. So we are not as easy to see as animals, but uh, sometimes, but it's it's all the same stuff.
1: I have two beautiful cats and uh, I've had them for a really long time. And it is interesting how, as I hear you talk about these seven points, uh, that I can really see those points in them and and in our relationship, right? I can see that, you know, when I'm away, uh, they get they get nervous and when i'm away i get a little nervous right because we've had this cohabitating for so long they're they're both uh, i think 18 years old now so they've been around a little while in my life right and uh so i'd love to talk about this concept of attachment a little bit more deeply so uh, I read a um, study not long ago, a, a while ago, that was really about how we attach to animals and how they attach to us, right? Do, can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and what that looks like in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the experience or the science of it?
0: Att- attachment. Is you, you can see it in children because again, when the parent is away, they become distressed. Uh, they will be comforted when the uh, parent or the caregiver, you know, comes to them. Uh, there's an interaction. You can see it on the face. Uh, and, and again, poor attachment you can see in autism uh, people where those circuits are not working right, and so they don't respond to people. They don't respond to facial expressions like uh, children in, in the in the normal range, and. Uh, can be very frustrating for the parent, uh, because again, we have that desire, that caring circuit where we want to interact with them. We want to feel like they're empathizing with us and they're seeing us. And when they ignore it, it's just like when your mate is ignoring you, right? Or a friend is ignoring you. Uh, it causes distress, but in people with, where that those circuits are dampened, uh, they don't have that distress. Uh,
1: What is a way that we can nurture that caring circuit part of the relationship in our animals and us? Tell me more about that caring circuit and how we overlap and what that's like.
0: Well, it it gets into, you know, what we mentioned earlier, that the things that make a person happy and uh, positive psychology really took off right around 2000. And so over the last uh, 20 years or so, there's been a lot of research into what makes people happy in life. And uh, the three big ones, most people can guess, the first one is relationship. The thing that gives people a sense of satisfaction, again, is when we can connect with a person at a deep level. Uh, and, and that's, again, part of that caring circuit. Uh, that's just so much a part of us. Uh, we're wired for connection with people. And when we don't have it, uh, we, we, well, if we've got a little bit twisted, I guess, <laughs> Uh it's And you see it all around us today. People don't have uh, deep relationships. You know, I have 500 Facebook friends. But is there somebody you can sit down and really share your life with and connect with at a deep level? That's what what is missing in so many people's lives today. In fact, I've been reading all kinds of articles about how depression is up, anxiety is up. You see anger all over the place with people. Uh, and it's because one of the things is because they don't have that deep relationship where they connect and fulfill that part of ourselves, which is a biological need. We we need to connect. Um, the other two of course are purpose and meaning and a lot of people have no purpose or meaning in life. So it's not, a, it's not a mystery why, why the world is so crazy right now, especially coming out of COVID and all the isolation and just all of the, uh, Things that are happening um, that are robbing people of purpose. They're losing their work. They're, you know, AI is starting to take over lots of parts, areas of our lives. Um, uh, yeah, it causes problems.
1: Let's let's try to try to dig into some of this a little bit more. Um, in your book, tell me: is there do you do you talk about um, what? In what way that overlap with animals can serve us?
0: Well, again, animals a lot of times will serve as a substitute for a person. Uh, People can get great comfort uh, out of their pet, whether it's a dog or a cat, and they become um, basically your child. And so that satisfies that deep need for connection with something. You know, the nice thing about a dog or a cat is you can tell them anything. <laughs> you, you can be very honest with them. And, uh, you know, they're just responding to you as a person there. And, you know, they're taking comfort from your presence. And uh, they do pick up on when you're distressed. Uh, they read you, read your facial and body language. Uh, that's one of the interesting things about um, about us that a lot of times people don't realize is that Part of our interaction is the ability to see and to hear and to smell and to feel people around us. And of course, that's missing in electronic uh, interactions. We get some of that through video like this, but that personal interaction and especially just the warmth of that person or that animal being next to you, you know, it's triggering all those circuits inside of you. I think the easiest way to kind of see how that subconscious reading of people is, is if I say the the phrase, I love you, I can say it three different ways. Hey, I love you. You know, I love you. "Ah, I love you. You know what each of those three things mean without my having to explain them because it's wired into us and our ability to read uh, facial expressions, tone and language. And animals have that just like we have. In fact, uh, they're much more in tune to it than, than we are because they don't have the higher thinking processes. So uh, they're working on more of that uh, direct experiential thing. We we tend to sometimes get cut off of that because we're so busy in our, in our head thinking about stuff. Uh, and some people, are, of course, are better at it than others. So,
1: so when we look at these uh, seven triggers, do they relate to uh, the concepts of purpose and meaning, right? Are they something that we can, uh, utilize to, to find that purpose and meaning?
0: Well, it, it all gets inner, inner, inner a- intertwined. Uh, the one I didn't mention was, of course, was anger. And so, uh, when you get into the negative emotions that people experience, uh, the two basic things that cause negative emotions are threat and loss. Okay. Uh, loss will trigger sadness. Um, that, again, that separation of something that's important to you, whether it's a person, a work, uh, your position, power, or whatever. Um, threat also has to do with um, things that can sometimes be very abstract. You know, again, your position, your power. And when you're threatened, you either experience anger or sadness, depending upon whether you think you can manage the threat. So if I think I can manage the threat, I tend to get angry and I want to get rid of the threat. And if the threat seems too much for me to manage, I want to get away from it. I become frightened. And again, these are emotions that extend over a broad range. Fear can be uh, just anxiety to panic. Anger can be irritation to rage. So when you get into purpose again uh, and meaning, but let's start with with purpose. If uh, my purpose is my work or my family and something threatens that, that's going to fire up those emotions. Uh, And again, that... Sometimes it gets filtered through some very irrational stuff, and sometimes it's rational stuff, uh, depending upon your beliefs, expectations, and your experiences. Meaning's a little bit broader, because meaning has to do with uh, uh, the bigger questions. You know, what is, the, what is the meaning of life? Is there life after death? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Uh, do I just die and disappear when I'm gone? Uh, you know, these types of questions, which kind of, interplay with your immediate purpose, which might be a good parent, uh, uh, helping people, you know, things of that nature, which is kind of a more goal-oriented thing in your life. Whereas meaning is kind of this more broad thing that gives your purpose context. And as a culture, especially here in the U.S., we don't think about those deep questions very much. And we're so busy with just entertainment and flooding ourselves with sensory stuff that we haven't sat down to really think about, you know, what, 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 how do I believe all these things? And of course, that's fine until something interrupts your life. A loved one dies, a pet dies, you lose your work, you have a serious injury, accident, things of that nature. And then if you don't have something to put that into context within your life, which is what your sense of meaning is, it gives you a context, uh, then you're not a very happy camper. Again, you see that throughout our society right now. People don't have a sense of purpose. They haven't really figured out, you know, how they fit into things. Uh, and so they go on, you know, politics for a lot of people becomes their their sense of where they get their meaning and their purpose, right? And that's a very shallow thing in terms of all of the things that we experience in life. Um, so, yeah, it's purpose. Uh, one of the things I like to point out to people is uh, some of the near-death experience uh, research that's gone on since uh, old Moody... Uh, Put out his book Life After Life, and I believe it was in the seventies, late seventies. And since then, there's a lot of research into uh, these near-death experiences that people have, and it's interesting. Anybody who seriously looked at that, they realize that when you die, that's not the end of it. There are other things that happen. That there is some kind of life after life, and weaving that into your meaning, I think, becomes really important. What am I going to do with that? Uh, Do I go to some traditional religion? Do I come to something different? Uh, but the fact that maybe I do continue after this life, you know, um, that's going to make me interpret the things that happen to me differently from if I'm just a machine that dies and I'm gone because I'm just a machine who dies and I'm gone. Then I need to get everything I can right now. Right. And so that is going to cause a lot of anxiety when you're not getting those things.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Things have to go your way. Yeah. I uh, as you were talking about that I really think um that the the quantum science has done a lot for that in the last several years where it sort of opens doors right for people who maybe religion isn't so easy to reach for they've either had trauma around it or it just doesn't make sense to them they just can't make that be real for them um but that now we have that sort of science around uh How could it work? (laughs) How might it work, right? And I love that that matches up with those near-death experiences that that you're talking about and that there's something, but we're not sure exactly what, um, that is beyond the physicality of our bodies. Uh, I do a lot of work with people uh, with their body, mind, and spirit. And part of that is to really raise awareness about the energy around the body, you know, and to really understand that even in our bodies, we're a little bigger than we expect to be, right? We're a little, we don't like to talk, talk uh, stand too close to people in public. There's a reason for that, <laughs> right? And uh, and so like, what is that for you and how are you gonna define that? And And without, I think you're absolutely right, without the ability to find um, a longer purpose than whatever is here in this moment, then it becomes very difficult to make choices that uh, create really good feelings, right? That you can really find happiness. And of course,
0: short term, it may work, right? It's just when yeah. something interrupts that, <laughs> then yeah. then you get thrown into crisis and yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard time.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about, you were talking to me earlier before the the uh, recording about joy and happiness. Let's talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, it's, again, it gets into uh, relationship is the big one. And one of the things I like people to do, who uh, have difficulty with, with re- relationships, is to, uh, I've got a little inventory. And it talks about some of the things that make for uh, positive relationships, especially in a family, a healthy family. And it's interesting when people go through that checklist, they often find that the things that they're having difficulty with are the same things that were lacking in their family origin, which is to be expected, right? You learn how to interact and you learn how to be around people by interacting with the the adults and the kids that you were with when you were young. And if those were positive interactions, if they gave you time, if they... They were safe. You could say things, and it wouldn't come back on you. Things of that nature. Then you're able to do that as an adult. It's it's interesting because when you work with somebody um, or a single person, maybe who's had a series of disastrous uh, relationships. Uh, let's take oh, well, we'll take a take a lady. I can be a guy too. Let's maybe take a guy. Okay, and uh, you look at their background. Usually, their parents uh, were not very good at relationships in some important way. Uh, either some kind of abuse or something of that nature or just absent a lot of times. In fact, that's one of the crises right now with uh, young boys is there's so many single families where there's not a strong male model for them to model after. And uh, that's a whole nother subject, but yeah. Uh, so you, you, what happens is they don't know how to relate to people in an open and honest way. So you can put them in a room with, let's say, 20 ladies, and all of these ladies are going to be presenting well at that moment, but within about 15, 20 minutes, he'll be talking to the ones that come from really dysfunctional backgrounds. And the way that works is through that subconscious reading that we do of people. They get around somebody who has appropriate limits, um, who is uh, appropriately honest about things, and they feel funny. They get around people that are mirroring their background and, okay, this is familiar. This, this is something I like, uh, because again, it's familiar. And at that time, again, everybody's presenting well, it's only later that they realize there there's, there's another side of that story, right? Uh, so part, part of it is in, in finding joy, again, it's connecting with people. And if you don't have healthy interactions, then it's something you have to learn how to do. And you can learn that, uh, just as you can learn any other skill. It's interesting, um, when I when, when we sit down and we start talking about, uh, like with a single person, how do you identify somebody who's healthy? And we start going through, you know, appropriate limits, you know, appropriate self-disclosure, you know, things of that nature. And uh, I say, okay, so where do you find people like this? Do you find them hanging out in a bar someplace on Friday night? Well, probably not. Maybe, if you're lucky, you know. Uh, so we talk about the types of so, you know, churches, social organizations, things of that nature. You need to go there and you need to identify a couple people, maybe work, who have these characteristics and you start to hang around them. And I bet you could guess what their number one complaint is. These people are so boring. There's absolutely no drama in their life. And joy is not about excitement and momentary hits. I mean, those, those are good. We like those. But that deep satisfaction you get of comfort and knowing that you can, you know, be with somebody and you're safe and uh, you can just sit there, you know, the, the ability of just to sit next to somebody, whether it's a pet, you know, or a person and just experience that moment uh, of peace and connection is something that a lot of people don't have nowadays. And it's something that really satisfies the soul in a way that that entertainment, you know, a TV program doesn't. Mm-hmm.
1: I like that you bring up this idea of when we are uh, experiencing wild interactions, right? We're very happy, we're very sad, we're all over the place. That we really don't have a lot of awareness of the nuances, and uh, so this this idea of sort of being willing to be uncomfortable. In because you sort of alluded to this, I have to be willing to be attracted to hanging out with people who don't really feel like me, but they feel like maybe I wanna feel like that. Maybe.
0: (laughs) And that's the interesting about how you get rewired. You know, so much of our self help books, you know, talk about reprogramming the mind and, you know, deleting this and that. And we are not computers that's not the way we work and hanging around people who are healthy starts to rewire us from the inside out. And it's that experiencing of being around them and saying things, well, you know, this happened and they look at you and they say, Oh, that's terrible. i Oh, I didn't realize that was terrible. (laughs) You know, and getting that kind of feedback and and having the empathy and the appropriate expression of emotions, it rewires you from the inside out. And that's an experiential thing that you don't get an hour with a therapist or reading a book. You have to actually be living within that environment. It's kind of like a language. You know, the best way to learn a language is, is immersion. You go there and you're around people that are speaking it. And then it's easy for your brain and your mind and your body to pick it up. Uh, as opposed to just, you know, reading a book or something uh, on it. It's very different, very hard that way. Yeah, we're experiential beings. We we have to experience things for them to actually settle into us.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to really understand what is community worth, yeah. right? And and what does it matter who you hang out with yeah. and uh, how you surround yourself and what to do when you want to change? I mean, I, I think this is very true, uh, certainly from my experience, both for people who are in very bad situations right who want to come into the realm of health and healthy relationships right um but also for people who already have healthy relationships a good life uh who've set themselves up with uh, respectable boundaries yeah. and but they say to themselves i know there's more mm-hmm. and i want more i want more joy i want a a bigger sensation of happiness in my life. And I want to have the things in my life feel even more, right? And that sense of community is so important. Uh, My father said to me one time, uh, a rising tide raises all boats, right? That if you're in it, if you're part of that, whatever that water level is, then you're going to be there, (laughs) right? So that's, that's really great.
0: And the interesting thing is somebody comes from a healthy background, they get into that environment like we talked about earlier, and they immediately recognize this is not good for me. This is good. You know, those filters are built in. People who haven't had that experience growing up, it's like walking in with blinders on. They don't see, they don't pick up on on those subtle indications that there's something wrong here. And and that's something that does, you can't train. And I think having a list of uh, very concrete and specific things that you're looking for, such as, can I say whatever I want? Does the person come back and, uh, you know, take things that I've said and use them against me? You know, uh, having a list of things uh, like that that you're aware of when you go into situations, it helps you to identify, oh, yeah, this is healthy, because I was not aware that these were things I should be paying attention to. I just thought it was normal that people come back and, you know, do this type of stuff to you. And, you know, they joke when you say you know, when you say something that's really important or sensitive to you and things of that nature.
1: Yeah. Well, I am so glad that we got to spend this time together. I want to make sure that everybody knows how to get in touch with you. Do you, uh, also, do you have a, a list like that? Did you say you have that?
0: Yeah, that's the book. It's part of it. I have like the, um, actually there's about 15 or so, uh, Traits of a healthy ha- family, and and they're also the traits of healthy relationships in general. Uh, it's a big old long list of things, and and not everybody has all of them. You don't need all of them, but if you have most of them, you're a pretty happy camper. Because <laughs> uh, again, we're 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 human beings that grow up in a broken world, and we all have little. We're all funny in some little way, right? So that's okay too, and that's part of I think coming to that self acceptance that helps you to feel that joy that you're talking about. Is uh, I talk about normalizing yourself because when you deal with people with different types of problems I, I dealt with anxiety disorders a lot you know they they tend to see the world through their disorder quote and become their disorder and get into the point where you realize that hey you know that's just i am who i am i'm just so funny that way and that's okay everybody's got their quirks you know you got weird uncle joe over there and you know aunt sally's kind of off here or there but you know that's just the way people are. And yeah, I'm working in those areas that I'm weak in, but I'm okay the way I am. It's just a matter of that self-acceptance becomes so important.
1: Yeah. Self-acceptance is an incredibly important first step in terms of finding joy in the work that that I do with people as well. I really love hearing that. Well, thank you so much for being here. Tell us, how can uh, our our listeners get in touch with you?
0: The easiest way is to go to my website, uh, whyemotions.com, so W-H-Y, whyemotions.com, and you can find out about the new the book, uh, Why You Feel the Way You Do, is there, and uh, links to my uh, YouTube channels, and there's some freebie stuff. I've got some relaxation response tapes and other things there that I've used with clients in the past, so just, just a whole bunch of things there that people can enjoy.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. I want to also remind everybody that you can go to unbreakable.guide to get your guide to becoming unbreakable, right? So all of those emotions that we've been talking about today in terms of fear and anxiety and all the things that stand in the way of you finding your way to real happiness have a way to be able to deal with them and to find your way forward. So Go to unbreakable.guide and get your guide. Thank you.